by the way, this is uh, the Chapel of the Holy Cross in Sedona, Arizona. Uh, Jesse and I visited there a few years ago. It's quite impressive. Uh, built, it seems like, in the late 40s or 50s. Uh, a bit of an architectural wonder if you ever get to the Sedona area north of Phoenix. Anyway, with that as a backdrop or an image, there's a pretty well-known passage in Matthew 16. I'll read it to you, Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. And Jesus is hanging out with the apostles, and this is what happens. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so this is north about 25 miles from the Sea of Galilee, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? What's my reputation? They said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, before I mention a little bit more about the Apostle Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter's a fine fellow, and I'm sure lots of preachers in heaven are going to apologize to him when they see him face to face for the way he's been abused in pulpits and teachings. But he's a lot like us, right? Dust and clay. But he aspired nobly and he didn't always come up to his aspirations. So great guy, right? Key guy in the early church. We know all that. But some people teach that when Jesus responded to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, that Jesus was saying, in fact, that the church of Jesus Christ, the abiding presence of God on the earth, was being founded on the bit of clay and dust that was the person of Peter. And I would just ask, does that make sense at all? And, and just to mull over just a little bit, four verses later in this same text, Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter is rebuking Jesus when Jesus says, my mission, my goal is to go to Jerusalem to suffer for the sins of the world, die and be resurrected. And Peter says, may it never be. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, get behind me, Satan. Peter's gone from saying the words of God, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, to now being the voice piece for Satan, telling Jesus don't do it. Is that the person Jesus is really founding his church on? Or how about later? We know famously Peter denied noting Jesus three times. You can read about that in Matthew 28. You know, and, and, and he thinks he's up to the task, doesn't he? But... He's not, and he fails miserably. Now, we would say, well, look, all of that's before the Holy Spirit came. And I'd be good with that. But there's more, because if you go to Galatians 2, he has the Spirit. Peter's a key leader in the early church, and yet what do you see in Galatians 2 happening? You see the Apostle Paul rebuking the Apostle Peter publicly for hypocrisy. So just to ask again, If we are tempted to think that Jesus is saying He's building His eternal church on the foundation that is the person, the bit of dust and clay that is Peter, could we really take that seriously? Probably not what Jesus means, right? No matter what we've heard growing up or otherwise. Peter would not be a good choice for the foundation of the church and and neither would any of us. So what is Jesus saying here? What's the deal? So 
there's a little bit of a play on the words here in the Greek. So Jesus says to Peter's confession, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, the earth, the world, the Jewish nation has been waiting for to save us from our sins. And you're the Son of the living God. You're God the Son taken on flesh, come down here to save us. That's the confession. So Jesus says to Peter, you're Peter, and in the Greek that's Petros. And that's you're a stone. You're a bit of rock. You're a little rock. And on this rock, now he changes the Greek to Petra, the feminine, which means a massive rock or bedrock or foundation. On this massive rock, I will build my church. So to Peter's confession of who Jesus is and what he's doing, Jesus says, the bedrock, the rock on which Jesus will build his church is his own person and his own redeeming work. So God the Son on earth come to save sinners like us, Peter included. That's the rock, Jesus says, upon which he would build his church. Jesus' church, the house of God on earth, is not founded on the little shaky stone that was Peter, but on the massive, sure bedrock of the person of God the Son come to save us from our sins. The Son of the living God, Messiah. It says it this way in an old hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The refrain of that song is, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Guys, we are in 1 Timothy 3, and you get really to this thematic center of this epistle from Paul to Timothy, and this is the key. It, it, everything goes towards this in the front part of the book. Everything goes back to this from the back half of this letter also. But in the context of saying the church is the household of God, and these are the things that speak to life in God's household, you get these key verses that say something very specific about Jesus. And it brings up this, this imagery of what the foundation of the household of God on the earth is. What it was from Jesus from the point of Pentecost on forward. What does that look like? And it all gets down to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on Peter, not on other personages, not on capable human beings, but on Jesus Himself. You remember we've been through chapters 1 through the rest of chapter 3 and we've looked at God's commands to sons and daughters about praying and how you dress and how you interact and what we do and don't do. He said that leadership in the local church is supposed to be servant leadership in the first part of chapter 3, just like Jesus. Just older brothers in the faith that are helping, serving, encouraging younger siblings. But this morning he gets to the center of the epistle and it is all about the Lord Jesus very specifically. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn. It's a very short passage this morning, only three verses. Starting at verse 14, Paul continues writing to Timothy and he says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, he, and here of course the references to Jesus, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Now first, I don't know if you guys can read that well. 
if you're old enough, you'll know that's Father Knows Best. And to the point in verse 15, Paul says here that he wrote Timothy so that Timothy and the believers in Ephesus, and of course through them, you and I, all the way down to today, would know what our Father's directives are in his household. That in this case, Father Knows Best. That we live in the household of God. It's God's house. We're His children. God sets the agenda. We don't. Father knows best. And the call here, Paul says, is that we know how to conduct ourselves, how to behave ourselves in the church of the living God, the household of faith on earth. Friends, local churches can do a number of things differently. If you go from one church to another... Just think of the buildings. Buildings could look very different. You could have big or small buildings. You might like one color of paint and another church may like another. You may change the order of service, the, the order in which you arrange what you do. All of that would be fine. There's, there's variety. We're different. All of that would be fine. But singularly, the key concepts, the key calls of God to the church cannot vary from one church to another because we are all members of His singular household. Because the church universal is God's house, because it's His dwelling place, because every local church is a mini version of that universal household, the key characteristics of each local house aren't a matter of personal taste or discretion, but a matter of the homeowner's directives. We are receiving from God what we are to do in His household. We are not telling God or each other how things will be. It's not up to us to determine those foundational elements. Lots of variety outside of that, but not the foundation. God's house, God's rules, that's the way that goes. Look again at verse 15. You know, Paul's talking about a house, and he's saying that we are the household of God. And in verse 15, he uses some architectural terminology to keep us thinking in that imagery so he says there that the church of the living god is a pillar and a buttress of the truth a pillar just like you see here this is a cutaway view by the way of of what solomon's temple may have looked like and you can see one of the two primary pillars there decorative pillars supporting the front facade of the temple uh, the term uh, pillar in the Greek is stulos. We would say stylos today or style. If you look at a window or a door, the vertical members on the side that support the door are the styles. And that's the thought here. So Paul says the church is like a pillar. And it's this vertical supporting member. And what it's supposed to do is hold up the truth. The church is a pillar. It holds up the truth. He says the church is also a buttress. Hedrioma, and it means the ground or the foundation that the truth rests on. So the church, Paul says, is the place where truth is held up and supported. It's the place where an immovable foundation exists upon which the truth can be found. I don't have an image of this for you this morning, but if you look at this image, you see stairs in front of the high priest. It's thought, Lane Rittmeyer is one of the key archaeologists on the city of Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount. His take is this, that on the Temple Mount when they built it, stairs went up because the natural incline of Mount Zion of the hill the temple was built on went up right there. 
And in fact, if you look, if you go online today, you can look at images from the Dome of the Rock that were taken above the Dome of the Rock. And you remember for Muslims, this is this holy place from which Muhammad left earth on his noble steed to heaven. That same rock. Well, there's a little niche carved in that rock. There's a, there's a, tri, uh, a square corner cut out on that rock. You can see it in images today. Uh, Lane Rittmeyer suggests this. He believes that the Ark of the Covenant sat right there. And that rock was excised as the flat place upon which the Ark of the Covenant rested. In other words, the presence of God on earth, because His glory dwelled right above that Ark, and the Ark, the box, contained God's Word on earth, the Torah, those ten words from the Ten Commandments, that the truth of God and the presence of God on earth rested on bedrock, not on something that men had made. That God's presence on earth and the truth of God as seen in His law, was resting directly on His original creation, that rock shelf that was part of the, the creation of God originally there in the land of Jerusalem. When a church abandons the foundational commitment to know and teach the truth of God's Word, it's given up its legitimacy as an expression of the household of faith. When a church gives up, the truth which is understood to be the, the reason for the church's existence to hold up on one hand and to be the foundation on which the, the truth rests, when the church gives up God's truth, it's given up its legitimate claim to be the household of God on earth. Friends, there are churches closing today. There are churches on the brink of closing because they've simply become irrelevant and this is what has happened. In order to be relevant, they decided that they could fudge on what God had said. The culture's gone a different direction, and so they changed their message. And basically what happens is this. They're of no value to anyone now. Because they're not salt and light, because they're not proclaiming the truth of God's Word, specifically in the Gospel related to Christ, the foundation of the church, but also, think of it this way. If I'm in the world and I want to live life on my terms, I don't need someone in a robe telling me I'm okay. The church becomes a place where not only truth cannot be found, but you're a poor, broken, second fiddle to the world that doesn't need your approval anyway. And the church becomes irrelevant because it tries to be relevant to the world by accommodating what it thinks the world wants instead of retaining words of sound truth. The church stands as God's house to display the eternal, unchanging truths of God's Word, and specifically so in the person and work of Jesus, we would say the Christ. This is all about the Gospel. It's, Paul calls it the faith, or he's going to call it here in just a minute, the mystery of godliness. So the church, God's house, it's supporting, it's holding up the truth, so you can see it, and it's also the foundation on which the, the truth rests on the earth on the foundation that is God's house. Now, when Paul tells us this, he then tells us the truth of first importance that the church is supposed to uphold, hold up, we're founded on, has specifically to do with the person of Jesus, the Son of the living God, Peter's confession again, the rock on which the church was founded. You're the Son of the living God, you're God the Son on earth, and you're our Messiah, you're our Savior. That's specifically the truth of God's Word that we're supposed to see here. Look at verse 16. It's short and it's cryptic. This is called a hymn to Christ. This was an early hymn the church would have sung. You know, 
literacy was fairly high in the ancient world at this time, but books would have been hard to come by. And so this era, just like the time of David's life, they memorized lots of things. And so they used literary devices by which they could remember lots of data information. If you read some of the Psalms and we say they're acrostics, it might be in the Hebrew alphabet. You go through the Hebrew alphabet. That's a way to remember each line. Well, here it's short and cryptic, just like songs we would sing or hear today on the radio would be. And each line is meant to be a compact version of a big statement. So a cryptic lyric that unfolds a big message. And that's what you've got here. So we're going to take this line by line. I do love it, by the way. So do you see what he said? Paul says, uh, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness before he says verse 16. Maybe that rings a bell for you. Do you remember in this very city that's being addressed through this letter in Acts 19, do you remember the riot that broke out? The riot breaks out because they say, hey, these Christians are going to destroy our business because we're the site of the shrine to Artemis of the Ephesians. And if these Christians take over, we're going to lose our business. And so the silversmiths cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here it's as if Paul has a mocking echo in return. And he says, great is the mystery of godliness. It's not about Artemis. It's about Jesus Christ. That's how he starts it. Mystery here, he says too, we've said this repeatedly, but probably bears repeating this morning. Mystery means something we don't see if God doesn't show us. We don't know it if God doesn't tell us. Related to Jesus being the Messiah and God the Son on earth, there are certainly inferences in the Old Testament. Did we know God was going to send a Messiah? Absolutely. Think of Psalm 22. Think of Isaiah 52 and 53. There's going to be a suffering servant. Did the Jews know or would we have known clearly that the suffering servant is God? Is Yahweh Himself on earth? We didn't know that. So God's telling them now the mystery of godliness of the faith of God's revelation to men on earth is all tied up. It's now revealed because Jesus has made it known in Himself. Philip Towner in his commentary on 1 Timothy says, the mystery of godliness means the revelation of Jesus Christ in which Christian existence has its origin. We would say this is about the gospel or the faith. The mystery of godliness is the same thing. So here, line by line, let's just cover this somewhat briefly. So the hymn goes like this. He, referring to Jesus here, was manifested in the flesh. And we would say this is the Christmas message. This is the message that God took on our humanity. And remember, this is simply the, the message of the gospel in a cryptic song lyric form that tells a big message. And the big message starts with this, that God was manifested in the flesh. That God took on our humanity, came to the earth as one of us, was born of that virgin there in Bethlehem. That's the beginning of this message, that God became one of us. And think about this. Way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, right after the fall, God told Adam and Eve and the serpent that one day the seed of the woman would come and would crush the serpent's head. And that was a messianic promise. Way back in Genesis 3.15, God said, I'm going to save a Savior. I'm going to send a Savior. Think of this too. 
Genesis 3.15 is in the context of the fall. God said, if you disobey, if you eat, you'll die. They ate and they died spiritually in the moment and years later they would die physically. The context of the first promise about God coming to save us assumes that we're lost in sin and death. There are churches today, guys, that are accommodating their message essentially to say that human beings are okay as we are living life on our own terms. And they don't, they don't see it this way, but this is the effect of saying, my li- I'm not a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a good person. My lifestyle choices are all fine. I'm good. God loves me as I am. The problem with that is it assumes, it makes us come to the conclusion that we're not sinners lost who need a Savior. Friends, there's no need for God to be manifested in the flesh if we don't have a sin issue. If we're not lost, we don't need to be found. If we're not sheep who've wandered astray, we don't need a shepherd to come and find us. God manifested assumes we're lost sinners in need of a Savior. And that's why Jesus comes to become one of us because He's going to take our place at the cross and bear the penalty due our sins. But God manifested in the flesh is not just a happy Christmas card image. It assumes we're lost. That we have a sin issue and that's why God is putting on our humanity and taking on our flesh. You can't redefine behavior to say you're not a sinner anymore. If you do, you no longer need a Savior and there's no need for the incarnation. The next line says this, that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicate is the same Greek word that's translated righteous in Galatians or Romans. Dikaio. The resurrection said of Jesus, He is altogether right, righteous, God says from heaven. When He died on the cross, it looks like He's a loser. He's condemned by the world as deficient. And if that's the last you saw of Him, you would not think He was righteous. He was not altogether lovely. He was not what He should have been, ought to have been. But in the resurrection, God says, no, He is altogether righteous. He absolutely put sin away. He conquered sin and death. And now He's risen and His resurrection is His vindication. God says He accomplished His task. He paid for sin. He atoned for sin. He's died. He is holy. He is altogether lovely. He is vindicated. He's declared righteous in His resurrection. It says next He is seen by angels. Part of the thing on angels for me is God is so cool and the things He does are so cool that though He's absolutely sufficient in Himself, uh, it's appropriate that He has an audience for what He does. What He does is so cool that it would be a good thing if there were an audience there just to see who He is and what He's up to. And that's a primary role that angels play. We know that they serve us in different times and different ways. But guys, angels are witnesses to God, to who He is and what He does. And they were witnesses to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. This can go in a couple different ways. When you think of the story of the incarnation, you see angels at every key point. So when Mary gets pregnant, an angel tells her this is what's going to happen. And at Jesus' birth, the angels tell the shepherds this is what's going on. When Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness, the angels serve Him when that's wrapped up. When He's tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, angels are there. At the resurrection, angels are there. 
They're part and parcel of the life of Jesus as the Messiah on the earth. You see that. But also, the angels are in heaven also. And so there's a text from Ephesians 1, I think it's verses 20 and 21, where God has seated Jesus again in the heavenly realms. Who would have been there to see Jesus the victor come back to heaven and assume his rightful position next to the Father? Angels would have seen him again, seated in heaven. By the way, demons would have seen him risen back in glory as well. Angels fallen and angels unfallen would have been witness to this as well. In heaven and on earth, in the, in the seen world and in the unseen world, God says there are witnesses to who and what my son is. And thinking about the temple again for just a second, you guys have in your mind what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, that gold box with the long rods that, that came out of the sides, and there's a lid on top that we call the mercy seat. Inside is the law, on top is the mercy seat. And what's on top of the mercy seat? There's two angels. And what are, they, what are they doing? They're looking down, aren't they, at the mercy seat. So that every time the high priest came with the blood of the sacrificial lamb and splattered the blood on the mercy seat between the angels, the angels are beholding God's redeeming plan for mankind on the ark, on the mercy seat itself. That God always meant there to be witnesses to what He was up to and what He was doing. And you see that pictorially just in the statue images of those angels on the mercy seat. Angels are witnesses to what God was up to. Paul says that, that Jesus, that the Gospel, the mystery of godliness has been proclaimed among the nations, among the ethnos, ethnic groups. You know, ethnic groups typically have a common patronage. They, they come from the same lineage and they typically share language and customs, things along that line. Is this a big deal that the Gospel is proclaimed to the nations? See, most of us are Gentiles, aren't we? We're the nations. Guys, back in the day, we were the losers, weren't we? Because we didn't know God. Ephesians 4 says we were, we were lost. We were in darkness. We were without God and without hope. But what happened in Matthew 28 after the resurrection, Jesus commanded the apostles to take the gospel to all the nations, the ethnos, the ethnic groups around the world. And that's exactly what you saw doing. And all of a sudden you see salvation leaving this little corner of the land of promise. And now it's spreading out through the entire Roman world that Christ, according to Matthew 28, is now being preached to all the nations. This was huge. This was transformational. This meant that there was hope for people like you and me. People who didn't live near Jerusalem, who didn't know about the law, who didn't have the witness in the law and the covenants. That the nations were hearing the fruit of who Jesus was, God the Son, and what He'd done, died for the sins of the world. They not only heard, guys, but they also believed. Now, this was important, too, because God had said that the nations would come and would be blessed just like the Jews were. You see this in a variety of places in the Old Testament. Back to the mystery, though. You know, in Ephesians 3, the Jews didn't know that God was going to end, at least for a time, Judaism as the, the uh, container for His revelation on earth. And the mystery, part of the mystery was that God said He did away with the law. This is Ephesians 3. And instead of Jews and Gentiles, He said, nope, there's one new man. There's one new entity. The church, the household of faith on earth, is it. And Gentiles are as much, and today more fully, numerically at least, 
part of that entity than are Jews. But you no longer became a Jew to, be, to join the household of faith. They're all the same. So Gentiles, the nations, heard the gospel in fulfillment of the Old Testament and Jesus' command, and they believed. And they believed. If you were a Jew in this early church age, what do you think your expectation would be if you went to the hinterlands, to the barbarians of the Roman world, and proclaimed the gospel about a Jewish Messiah, what do you think your expectation would be on the level of success? Do you think it would be high? I mean, I'm probably thinking awfully low, right? What do those Gentiles know? They worship all these other gods. They don't know Yahweh. They don't have the law. Why would they believe? But what happens? They share the gospel, and the Gentiles believe. Do you guys ever find yourself thinking that if I just share the gospel, it's, it sounds like an embarrassing, kind of weird message to others? The message that turned the world upside down then is the same message you and I have. The spirit that dwells in the church and the believers today is the same that was there then. We should have as much boldness and confidence in talking to others about Christ, who He is, Son of the living God, what He did, He was the Messiah, He came to save us from our sins, as they had, as Paul had in his day. The message is the same, the spirit is the same, the work is the same. The Gentiles heard and they believed. And that's still going on today. We should have the same confidence that Paul did. The last thing he says in this cryptic lyric song is, Jesus was taken up in glory. Now this does not follow chronologically in the order of the others. So his incarnation, his resurrection, vindication, he's been preached and now he's believed on. Somehow Jesus' ascension, it would have gone back in that list. But why are they ending on this note? The last line of the song is about Jesus victorious in heaven. That as that song, that cryptic song wound down, as they sang that, the last thing they're thinking about is Jesus won. He conquered sin and death and He rose back victoriously. Heaven's conquering hero returned to the glories and acclaim of heaven. So the song ends on that high note that Jesus is the victor and He's back ensconced in the glories of heaven where He left from. Jesus wins. The last point of the mystery of godliness you know, this was so important too, I'll just point out. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, you see exactly the same message. Exactly the same message. Uh, Paul says there too in similar language, I delivered to you as of first importance. What's the most important thing the church could hear? Tell itself or tell others. The most important thing is Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He, he was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul says here, the bedrock God's house is built on, the truth God's household upholds, the defining element within the family of faith, the message the children of God tell each other and spread abroad is all about Jesus, who He is, and what He did. That's the focus of the church. If you get away from that, you've lost the reason the church exists today. Let me just ask some questions as we think about what this might look like applicationally. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper every first Sunday of the month, we're remembering this message, aren't we? Specifically, as Jesus asked us to, do this and remember me. My body's the bread, it's broken for you. My, the juice, the wine is my blood spilled out for you. Do this and remember me. The Son of the living God has become the Messiah, has saved us from our sins. 
every first Sunday. We proclaim this message. Guys, what do we do every Christmas? We proclaim this message that God the Son became the Son of God, came down to the earth, took on our flesh to save us. Those Gentiles living in darkness, Isaiah talked about, they need to see a great light. How's that going to happen? God is going to put on flesh. Every Christmas, we remember the same message. God became one of us. Why? Because we need a Savior. Every Resurrection Sunday, every Easter, what do we do? We're proclaiming the same thing. We're proclaiming the faith, the gospel, the mystery of godliness. Jesus not only died for the sins of the world, the blood spilled on that mercy seat, but He rose in vindication, having conquered sin and death. These are good, these are helpful, but these are just points on the calendar, aren't they? What does this look like outside of these calendar days? What about every other day of the year? What what would others think? What's the message others think? What's the message we communicate to to each other? And what's the message other hears from us based on what we say and our actions? You remember back to Peter. Peter said, Lord, you can count on me, right? the night of, uh, that Jesus would be betrayed. You can count on me. He boasted himself and he fell. And if all people know is something about us, they don't know enough, do they? That our task is to remind each other of the glories of Christ and to present Christ as the solution to every other person in the earth in the, earth, in the world. They have the same challenges we have. It all comes down to Christ. Uh, friends planted a church a year ago on the West Coast and they'd been there for a while. And He said our reputation is that we take the Bible seriously. They'd been around long enough that people knew they take the Bible seriously. Okay, great. They teach from the Bible and they, they try and follow it. So they're serious. What would people think about your life or mine? Or what would they think about the reputation of Lion and Lamb Church based on what they see or hear? What would our reputation be with others? You know, you could visit a church uh, because they're known for great teaching. And there are certainly churches across the country and the world that are known for great teaching. You might visit for that reason. Or you may hear they have great worship and you might go there for that. Or they have a great children's ministry and you might go there for that. They might have that reputation. My hope for this church, for us, for any of us, for all of us, is that Lion and Lamb, you and I, would be known for the proclamation of the Gospel. And I don't just mean the three points. Uh, Jesus came, He died, and He rose. But the consistent telling and retelling about the Son of the living God, who is the Messiah, and you see that throughout the pages of the Bible. You know, if we read the Bible and we just get the information, we missed the point, didn't we? Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John 1.1 tells us that Yahweh who created the heavens and the earth, by the way, that was Logos, that was Jesus. And Revelation 22 tells us that Jesus is coming soon. And at every point in between, the Scriptures is meant to explicate, to show, to reveal, to put on display the person and work of the Son of the living God. So that when we read the Bible, if we're not getting that, we're not reading the Bible aright, that it really does come down to the center of the life of the church, the foundation we rest on, the truth we support is all about the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Friends, what might the church be known for today? Uh, The church could be known for politics, right? 
political season and churches and Christians are getting involved in the political fray and what a year it is. Aren't we glad God's in charge? Who knows where this thing is going? Uh, leaders of Lion and Lamb Church are consistent in this belief. We believe the church should be involved in politics in these ways, in a holy way. We have absolutely no hope that politics solves the problems of mankind. None. Okay? But God uses it as a assaulting effect. Government is meant to punish wrongdoing and to exalt right living. Government is supposed to, politics and government, is supposed to make the world a better place to slow the progression of evil. And so Christians in this country, because we're a democratic republic, we can have a part in that. The least we should be doing is registering and voting. And this year I know people are saying, I don't like my choices. How about just picking the best of a bad choice? That would be a, that would be a good thing. We can be a good neighbor to others by simply voting for people that we think most closely, not that everybody, no one's Jesus, right? Until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, everything else is, is a, a bad replacement. But with that as a given, we can vote for those that we think most closely represent God's benevolent care for His creation and for His people. We can do that. By the way, we can also support people that run for office that we believe have a godly vision for people's welfare in this culture, this time, in this place. We can encourage people to run for office, to have that salt and light effect. This would be a good thing. We can and should do all of this. At the end of the day, having said all that, hoping we are all participating, we place no ultimate hope on politics or government. And we don't want to be known as political. We simply want to be known as good citizens with others participating in the process by which God is sovereignly at work to bring about His good presence, His good purposes on the earth. Guys, we could be known for our building. We could be known for having a giant building. We could be known for having a small building. We could be known for having a cathedral. Very fancy, right? Or something very simple. But at the end of the day, a building's a building. And we don't want to be known by a building. The building's not the church. The people are the church. What is, what is the body of Christ that meets in that building known for? We could be known for as being a particular subculture. We used to have a joke at our house called Little Christian. She's a little Christian. That means she does little Christian things. That means uh, think of the Christian uh, subculture. We've got Christian music. You've got Christian clothing. You got Christian this, Christian that. It's like you're little Christians, you know, your little Christian world and your little Christian subculture. It's fine to have Christian expressions, faithful expressions of any one of a number of things, but we don't want to simply be known as a subculture. We're like you, but just a little different. You have your food and we have Christian food. You have your music and we have Christian music. It misses the mark. We don't want to be known as simply some knockoff. We want to be known for Christ. We want to be known for the truth of God on earth displayed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. And studying, preparing for this message. By the way, isn't this a lovely image? I won't tell you where, but this is actually a stained glass window in Topeka, Kansas at a church that's uh, winding down because they left the truth. And they decided to become relevant by becoming irrelevant. 
in, in the context of this message, I couldn't think of a better close. This is from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This was preached December 22, 1867. And this is how he wound down his teaching. I wish I could write or speak like this. This is the way he wound down his teaching on this same text. Thinking of the mystery, the greatness of the mystery of godliness, he says this. If it is so great, how important it is for us to spread it. It does not require us to go to college in order to tell of Jesus. We can each in our sphere publish His fame abroad. If this simple truth is the message of God to perishing sinners, then in the name of common humanity and above all in the name of the love of Christ, let us deliver it. How this text ought to encourage us to spread the Gospel. This plain truth of God that... God was made flesh and dwelt among us, is God's great battering ram against which nothing can stand. Never lose heart in the Gospel, my brothers and sisters, but think you, hear the Apostle calling across the ages, great is the mystery of godliness. Look for nothing greater, the Gospel is great enough. Keep it. Never think you have told men enough times about it. As Napoleon told his warriors at the pyramids, a thousand ages look down upon you. Bleeding martyrs from their graves call to you to be faithful. Confessors who ascended to heaven in fiery chariots implore you to be steadfast. Hold fast that which you have received. Attempt not to mend the truth. Venture not to shape it according to the fancy of the times but proclaim it in all its native purity. By this hammer, the gods of Rome and Greece were dashed to shivers. By this lever, the world was turned upside down. It is this Gospel which has brought glory to God, filled heaven with redeemed souls, made hell to tremble in all its palaces of flame. Bind it about your heart. Defy the hosts of Rome or hell to unloose its folds. Wrap it about your loins in death. Hold it as a standard in both your hands in life. The simple truth of God that Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which is lost and that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life must be your jewels, your treasure, your life. Or we might say our foundation. The truth the church upholds, the foundation upon which we stand or to lose upon which we fall. Lord Jesus, thanks that You're the rock upon which all our hopes are based. Or, Lord Jesus, You are the rock that crushes all that comes before it. Father, our only hope is based in the dear, beloved Son, the One You were pleased to send and to save us. And Lord, who sits ensconced in glory with You now until He comes to receive this kingdom To that end, Lord, we proclaim as we proclaim the gospel to come and amen, Lord Jesus.